Oh, good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. And we are continuing through the book of First Peter. <clears throat> Why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer and we will get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Bless us now as we open up the scripture and study First Peter chapter 2. May it help us in our walk. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've gone through the first chapter of First Peter, and we got into the first two verses of chapter two last week, but we'll go ahead and start again in verse one, since we're starting this morning. And First Peter chapter one is talking about being elect, being chosen of God through sanctification. It talks about the trial of our faith. Um, it talks about being this, being born again of incorruptible seed, how flesh before we are born again is like grass that withers or fades away when the trials come. But if we are born again and we're incorruptible, that which is incorruptible does not fade away under the trials of this life. And that's describing the born again experience. And then we're going to transition now into chapter two, which describes this is what it means to be born again. And here's an example of someone who shows us how to live this life. So first Peter chapter two, starting in verse one, it says, wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So verse 1 starts off with the word wherefore, which is... A continuation of the previous chapter which says because you've been born again of incorruptible seed we lay aside all malice and all guile hypocrisies envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes and I talked about this last week but it's like okay so we are babes in the Christian faith newly born again and yet Peter is saying at that stage we lay aside all malice all guile hypocrisies envies and all evil speakings so in the context of this passage at the very least you can say when we begin our Christian walk in a born-again experience, we can't use the excuse, well, I'm just new in the faith, so I'm still struggling with um, gossip. Because Peter is saying, when you were a newborn babe, you lay aside all evil speaking. That would include gossip, for example. And you can fill in the blanks with, with the other examples that Peter used, and I already talked about that last week, but I just wanted to mention that. And... <clears throat> It talks about how we desire the sincere milk of the word, and we talked about this last week, that we start by drinking the milk of God's word. But when you go to Hebrews 5, and I'm not going to go back there again today, when you go to Hebrews 5, it talks about how we go from milk to strong meat. And only those who use meat understand righteousness by faith. So righteousness by faith is not 
something that we just scratch the surface and say, oh, I understand it now. God intends for us to get deep into the Word of God to understand righteousness by faith. So we start with the milk of the Word, but God forbid that we should always stay partaking of milk. You feed babies milk, but as adults, if all we're drinking is milk, that's poor nutrition. But spiritually speaking, a lot of us like to just stay on milk. Let's just talk about John 3.16 every day the rest of our lives. And hey, let's do that. But let's also talk about Daniel and Revelation and, and other important books of Scripture. So yes, we include the basics of Christianity, but we also go deeper. And some people just like to stay at the milk. And it's like in the educational system, there's a certain amount of shame if you have to repeat a year, for example. Well, a lot of us have no trouble with staying at the same level of Christian growth. We've stopped growing. We're still in third grade spiritually, and we've been Christians for 20, 30, 40 years, and we don't mind. There's a problem with that. And Danette, you had a comment. Exactly. Right. So for those of you who may not have heard, Danette was mentioning that Daniel and Revelation expand on John 3.16. So John 3.16 is foundational, and we, we build on that foundation. So those are just a couple of points. We talked about that last week. Verse 3 says, so we, as newborn babes, we desire the sincere milk of the word. We grow thereby. Verse 3 says, if so be, ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So when we drink the milk of God's word, we taste that the Lord is gracious. And if you're studying the Bible and you don't see God's grace in there, you need to go back to the basics. Sometimes the other, the flip coin is some people like to go straight to the meat and they don't understand the milk and then it gets really dry. It becomes very dry meat that's not palatable. So we need to be able to taste that the Lord is gracious. Amen. So those are, that's sort of the introduction. And then in verse 4 it says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. So when it says to whom coming as unto a living stone, who is this referring to? It's a continuation of the idea in verse 3 that the Lord is gracious. And we come unto him as a living stone. And Peter's going to develop this idea. So the Lord is a living stone. He is disallowed of men, but he's chosen of God and precious. And it's interesting that the Lord or Christ is described as being chosen of God. And yet in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says, We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit. The word elect also means chosen of God. So God's people who have the experience of salvation with sanctification and obedience are chosen of God or elect. And the Lord was chosen of God. Now there's obviously, there, it's, it's a comparison. It's not exactly the same. It's not saying that we're God, but there's a comparison here. The Lord or Christ was chosen of God and we are chosen of God. Now continuing on, 
So God or Christ or the Lord is a living stone chosen of God and precious. And notice verse 5, it says, ye also. So just as the Lord is a living stone chosen of God, Peter says, you also. So he's comparing us in, in some way. He says, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So Christ is the living stone and we also are lively stones or living stones. And with each one of us, it's God's intention to build up a spiritual house. And with the spiritual house, we are being described as a holy priesthood. Now to develop this completely, I want to go to verse 6 where it says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Now Peter is quoting Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16. So Jesus is being described as the chief cornerstone. And if you remember the story of the temple, Solomon's temple that was built, the cornerstone was initially rejected. It was thought to be an unusable stone that didn't fit in. It was too big. It didn't match what they were looking for. And then when they were looking for the cornerstone, which is the most important stone of the building. It sustains the rest of the building. They realized that that stone that they had rejected was actually the perfect description and the perfect match to be the stone to sustain the temple. And that's an illustration of what happened to Christ when he came to the Jews. So that's pretty straightforward. Now, it's interesting. We are described as lively stones or li living stones that are going to be used to build up a spiritual house. But clearly, the foundation or the cornerstone is Christ. So he is the foundation of the cornerstone that we are built upon. So what happens if you take the cornerstone out? the rest of the building will fall down eventually. So without Christ, if we are not built upon him as a foundation, you can have all the stones that you want and it's not going to make an effective building. And it's a pretty obvious illustration. So we are living stones. We're built up upon the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Now, there's, Jesus also talked about this illustration in Matthew chapter 21. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 21, where Jesus talks about this story. Jesus also quotes from Isaiah chapter 28 and starting in verse 42 
Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on the stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now this is interesting. Jesus is speaking to the Jewish nation and he says that I am the cornerstone and if you reject me, your kingdom will be taken away from you. And in 1 Peter, as you see what Peter is developing, he's talking to Gentiles saying, as we get later in the, the chapter in a few verses, he says, in time past you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation. Your lively stones built up a spiritual priesthood. And Peter is saying, the time has come where now you as Gentiles are living stones built on the cornerstone of Christ. And Christ told the Jews, hey, you are going to be rejected and the kingdom will be given to the Gentiles. So Jesus tells the Jews, this is what's going to happen to you. And now Peter is telling the Gentiles, hey, you are now the chosen people of God. You are the living stones. And of course, the illustration is Jesus is the chief cornerstone. If you fall on the rock and are broken, you will be one of the stones that is used to build up the house of God. However, if you are, if you reject that stone, that stone will fall on you and grind you to powder. So, <clears throat> going back to First Peter, chapter 2. <clears throat> it's interesting that this cornerstone is described as being laid down in Zion. He's the chief cornerstone, and those who are built upon him are described as being a holy priesthood. So Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He is our high priest, and yet those who are built upon him as the cornerstone are described as a priesthood. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, it says that God has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. So those of us who choose to follow the Lord are described as kings and priests. And in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, this expands upon this idea. It says, Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then shall you be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And notice verse 6, And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now, what was the condition to become a kingdom of priests? What was the condition here in Exodus? To obey God's voice and to keep his covenant. So, those who keep God's covenant are those who will be kings and priests to God or will be living stones built upon the chief cornerstone as a nation of kings and priests. What is the new covenant? In Hebrews 8.10 and 10.16, 
It's God's law written into our hearts and minds. So those who are obedient, who follow God, who have his law written into their hearts and minds are living stones, elect, chosen of God, and they are built upon the cornerstone that's laid down in Zion. And in 1 Corinthians 3, this is the last verse that I will reference to this idea of Christ as the foundation, as the cornerstone. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, it says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So here we see Jesus Christ as the foundation. And notice verse 12, it says, Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Now, notice this. So here's your foundation. Christ is the foundation. And our choice is to lay gold, silver, stone, wood, hay, or stubble on this foundation. When the day of judgment comes, whatever is on that foundation is going to be burned with fire. And if you have gold on there, gold that is tried in the fire gets purified. Stone also... Um, depending on the temperature, it will get burned, but it will survive. But obviously wood, hay, and stubble gets burned up. And it's interesting, in First Peter, Peter says that the trial of your faith being more precious than gold that perisheth with fire. And then it, later on in the book, he says, we are stones laid upon the foundation. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the foundation is Christ, and what we lay on the foundation depends on what our outcome will be in the day of judgment, because when the day of ju judgment comes, everything will be tried with fire. And if you have laid on the foundation by the grace of God that which is incorruptible, which we studied in chapter 1, the incorruptible seed, you're not going to wither and fade away when the heat gets turned up. And Christ is the foundation. He will sustain you. He will sustain you through the fiery trial because the foundation cornerstone will not be burned. It will not be moved. So I, I like that idea. And then you go on to verse 16 of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians that says, Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. So Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians, look, we are the temple of God. Peter is saying, we are the stones that make up the temple. Christ is the foundation of the temple, and we are the stones that build the temple up. And Paul says, we are the temple of God, and what we lay on that foundation depends on what our outcome will be. And if we defile that temple, when the fire comes, if you are defiled, you're going to be destroyed. But if you, you are pure and holy, you will survive that fiery trial. So, based on the scripture, what we've studied so far, God is building up a spiritual temple. Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. He was rejected of men when he came here to this earth. He was crucified, put to death. And yet, because of that, 
His death, his sacrifice makes him the perfect cornerstone. Because of his sacrifice, because of his death, he is able to be the foundation or the sustainer of all those who choose to follow him. And now, because of his sacrifice, he can take his blood and serve as our high priest, and we can be a kingdom of priests to God. And it's interesting, this temple is laid down in Zion. Keep that thought in mind. This temple is in Zion. And in verse 7, it says, Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of, a, of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Now, if we accept Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, if we believe, we will find that he is precious. If we've experienced the experience of accepting Christ as our Savior, seeing what he's done for us and what he is doing for us in heaven, Christ is very precious to us. But Peter is saying if you reject Christ, he becomes a stone of stumbling and an offense to you. It's like every time you're around Christians, you're like, man, those people, they're just so annoying. Man, they don't have any fun. You know, why would I want to be like people like that? And, and so on and so forth. Christ and his followers become a point of stumbling to you. And Peter is saying, don't let that happen to you. Verse 9, he says, but you. So he's contrasting this like, you know, we're not going to let this stone be a stumbling point for us or an offense to us. He's, he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So here Peter is speaking to the Gentile Christians. We believe this is written in about 66 AD. And he says, look, you have been chosen of God. So this concept of being chosen comes up several times. It comes up in chapter 1 when we are described as being elect, which means chosen of God. Christ is described as being the chief cornerstone chosen of God, or, and he's elect. We are described as being a chosen generation. So God has chosen people. He has elected them. We are a chosen generation. Specifically, in the immediate context, this was to the Gentiles who lived after the time of the death of Christ, who had now been chosen of God to be his people. And if they believed on him, they would be his people, Cho a chosen generation. They would be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that they would show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, it's interesting that Peter describes 
those who are chosen as a peculiar people. The marginal reading also says a purchased people or purchased with the blood of Christ. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, a similar concept of being a peculiar people is brought out. And this is a very famous verse, but it, it adds some nice context to 1 Peter chapter 2. So Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So what is Christ trying to do? He's trying to purify unto himself a peculiar people. And what are these people doing? They are looking for the blessed hope. So who are these people that are looking for the blessed hope? They would be Adventists looking for the second coming, right? Adventists are described as being a peculiar people. And while you can certainly say that Peter was writing to a group of people that were looking for the Advent in their time, the Gentiles of the first century were not going to live to see the coming of Christ in their generation. And so the immediate application to this passage is for the first century Christians, especially the Gentiles, but it's also to God's peculiar people down through the ages, especially those who are a peculiar people looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. That would be God's modern day Adventist people. That would be us. And we are also a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, remember we talked about in Exodus chapter 19, those who would be a kingdom of priests would be those who followed God's covenant. And what's God's covenant? God's law written into our hearts and minds. And so God's covenant people in these last days who follow all of God's law are a royal priesthood. So you can see that 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 has an application for us today as well. And the illustrations get more interesting as we go. So we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, which means a covenant-keeping people, a holy nation, a peculiar people who's looking for the coming of Christ, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And surely the Gentiles of the first century came out of darkness, out of their pagan traditions to follow the light of Christianity. Verse 10, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So the Gentiles of the first century were not in the time past were not a people of God. The Israelites were God's chosen people, but now all of all the world, the Gentiles, all those who believe in God 
are the people of God. So in, the, in time past, unless, you, unless some of you sitting here today are of Jewish blood, unless, unless you ha- have that heritage, you could not be, according to the Old Testament, a chosen person of God. You could receive salvation, but you were not the, the chosen people. And yet, after the time of Christ's death, all of us can be the chosen people of God. So this had to be a wonderful encouragement to the Gentile people that, wow, we, because we've accepted Christ, we are the chosen people of God. Now, there's also the interesting application to God's last day people who are also a chosen generation, a royal priesthood that are a covenant-keeping people, a holy nation, a peculiar people who are looking for the second coming of Christ according to Titus chapter 2. Notice in verse 10 it says, which in time past were not a people but are now the people of God. It's interesting, obviously Seventh-day Adventists have not always existed. They came into existence after 1844. But now we are the people of God. We are a covenant-keeping people, a royal priesthood. It says, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. It's interesting that the mercy seat of God is in the most holy place. And that is where Christ went to in 1844. So. I'm not saying that this is the exact interpretation of 1 Peter 2, but I'm saying that you can make the application that Christ went into the most holy place where the mercy seat is in 1844, where the law of God is contained in the Ark of the Covenant. So now, where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the law of God is, God goes in in Christ, go into the most holy place of a heavenly sanctuary to renew the covenant that had been broken. And the fourth commandment specifically was the commandment that had been forgotten. And so God raises up a people, a peculiar people, looking for the coming of Christ who renew their covenant with God to keep all of his commandments and they do so while Christ is now in the most holy place at the mercy seat so in times past there were not a group of people before 1844 that were keeping the covenant perfectly so to speak but now after that period of time you have a group of people so you can make the application that Peter, probably without even realizing it, is describing the experience of God's last day Adventist people, who in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace to help in time of need. Christ is at the mercy seat in the most holy place, making a covenant, a new covenant with his people, a peculiar people who are looking for the coming of Christ. So I thought that that was an interesting application. So we as God's Seventh-day Adventist people are a royal priesthood, a nation of kings and priests who keep God's covenant. So based on that, based on the first 10 verses, continuing in verse 11, Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. So those of you who are the chosen generation, the peculiar people of God, abstain from fleshly lusts. 
which war against the soul. And 1 John 2.15 describes fleshly lust. It says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So those three areas are very broad categories. The lust of the flesh pertaining to appetite, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And the pride of life is a very big issue for, for men and women. For men, it's like, it's like, what have I accomplished and how do other people see me? Have, am I a respected person in society? How, how good am I? And boy, if it wasn't for me, things wouldn't be happening. That kind of pride of life mentality. And you can see that, you know, in the workplace with the people who are in positions of authority and so forth. And for women, the issue of the pride of life probably comes in other ways, um, probably in the areas of fashion and dress and those kind of things, wanting to be accepted in the way that we look and all of that kind of thing. So the pride of life can be a major issue with respect to the lust of the flesh. And Peter is saying, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Um, the lust of the eyes, it's like you see things that are attractive and your carnal nature wants to partake in that. Things that you know that are wrong, but your carnal nature is saying, boy, that sure would feel good to do that. Those are fleshly lusts. They war against our soul. When we are a peculiar people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, holy, we do not partake of fleshly lusts. And Peter is saying, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts. And it's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 11, <clears throat> Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah are described as strangers and pilgrims on the earth. In Hebrews 11:13, and in verse 14 it says, For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. So as God's peculiar people, as pilgrims and strangers, our lives should declare plainly that we are seeking a heavenly country. So if we are not declaring plainly with our lives that we are seeking a heavenly country, we need to re-examine our experience with God. Are we God's chosen people? Are we living that way? And I, I think I said this when we went through the book of Hebrews, describing the experience of being pilgrims and strangers, declaring plainly that we're seeking a country. If our lives don't declare plainly that we are committed Christians, then it might be because we're not really Christians. Or in other words, like, if you go to work and you're working with a bunch of people who are not Christian and they don't know that you're Christian, maybe you're not a Christian. We should declare plainly by the lives that we live in a winsome way. It's not like you go to work and you're like, yeah, um, I don't eat meat, so um, you're bad because you're eating meat. Haven't you read Leviticus 11 or, you know, that kind of thing. We're, we're not, I'm not saying that we're obnoxious about our faith, but we are plainly declaring that we are peculiar in a nice way. And people 
should be able to respect and appreciate that about us. Now, I saw a hand over here. You got a comment? Absolutely. Right. 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 Absolutely. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. So I think the, the important point is that, again, is we do not want to be obnoxious Christians where we turn people off. And at the same time, we don't want to so f disguise who we are and disguise our identity that people don't even know that we're Christians. So we should be proud to be Christians in the good sense of the word, but in a humble and meek spirit. So, as pilgrims and strangers, we abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. And in verse 12, it says, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So it's like people who are prejudiced against Christians may think, oh boy, uh, they've had bad experience with other Christians, for example, and yet when they see your experience with God, it's like, wow, you have something different. You're a different kind of Christian than I've seen before, and it brings God glory. And we're going to just get through the next few verses. We won't finish the chapter today, but the next section will be a great section describing the, the example of Christ. Now, continuing on in verse 13, it says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, what Peter is saying here is, submit yourselves to the ordinances of men that have the authority over you. So the practical example today is drive according to the speed limit. And if you get pulled over, don't have a bunch of excuses for saying, oh, well, you know, everybody else was, was breaking the speed limit or I, I was in a hurry. It's like, you know, the law is the law. Pay your fine. That's just the way it is. Obey the law of the land. Pay your taxes. Hey, nobody likes paying taxes. I've, well, very few do anyway. Um, but that's we, we live in, in the country we, we live in, and we obey the laws that we are under. Pretty straightforward. That's a biblical principle, biblical counsel, is to obey the laws of the land that we live in, whether it's the king or the governor. And instead of complaining about it, <clears throat> we don't join in with the complaining about paying taxes, but we just do the will of God we, with well-doing, we silence the ignorance of foolish men. 
verse 16, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And here Peter's going to start to transition into some interesting ideas where in verse 17 he says, fear God. And of course that's reminiscent of the first angel's message, fear God, give glory to him, the hour of his judgment has come. And so we honor all men, we love the brotherhood, um, we honor the king, we fear God. And I'm going to finish today's class here in verses probably 18, 19, and possibly 20. We just have a couple of minutes, and we're going to pick it up in our next class. Verse 18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward, or those who are not good. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Now, <clears throat> what Peter is saying is, if you mess up, and you get chastised for it, and you take it patiently, that's just expected. Like if you, if you break the speeding, to, go over the speed limit, um, you're just expected to be nice to the police officer, so on and so forth. But the example is what happens when you're mistreated. And we're going to talk about that next time. We're going to pick up um, chapter two. Thank you.